Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Oxbow Partners is happy to support this episode of Following the Rules. Oxbow Partners is a management consultancy specialising in the insurance industry. In 2022, we were again named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. We help our clients, who include insurers, reinsurers, regulators and investors, with everything from growth strategy to operations, technology and M&A, not to mention the impact of the increasingly complex regulatory environment on their businesses, such as the current FCA General Insurance Pricing Fairness Rules, about which you'll find lots of commentary on our website, oxpopartners.com. If you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, please drop us a line. In the meantime, enjoy this podcast. It's certainly on the to-do list for firms to get that right, because the change is going to come at some point, then that will translate into supervisory action very, very quickly. Today's guest details how European regulators are changing their approach to regulating Europe's markets and what that means for the financial services firms under their supervision. He outlines the tools Europe's top finance watchdogs are missing in their efforts to better police European markets and how he believes national European regulators need to fill the gaps in regulatory expertise created as a result. He also explains why finance bosses should be preparing now for an upcoming set of European accountability rules, similar to the UK's senior managers and certification regime, and plenty more in between. Dr Michael Hurtis is a Frankfurt-based lawyer whose 14-year career has included stints at the European Central Bank and Lloyds Banking Group. Since 2021, he's been advising some of the world's largest financial services firms as a partner and head of the European Financial Institutions Regulatory Group at PwC Legal. Hi, Michael. Welcome to Following the Rules. Hi, Lucy. Thank you for having me. So it'd be great to start with a quick overview of your role. Who do you typically advise? Sure. So I'm a partner and the head of financial institutions regulatory for Europe at PwC Legal. My team advises financial services market participants who are already in the EU or looking to enter into the EU. We typically service EU headquartered institutions, but also a number of non-EU headquartered institutions. We also advise a number of EU supervisory authorities and other institutions. So it's quite a broad set of clients that we have the privilege of advising in the banking sector, the insurance sector, funds, and increasingly also in crypto asset um, service providers and those moving into that space. Okay. And what's topping your to-do list currently? What are your clients' most pressing regulatory concerns right now? Well, there are a number of issues. So it's a mix between prudential regulatory pressures and reform efforts in that field. So capital requirements regulation, as well as conduct of business regulatory reforms that are impacting the clients that we work with, as well as also helping policymakers at the national level implement some of the requirements that the European policymakers have met. So that's all really on the traditional financial services side. And then there's a large amount of development that's happening in the crypto asset space, where our firm and my team in particular are quite active in helping clients find solutions to some of the complexity that's currently there, given the absence of regulation, or unfortunately in certain instances still there, 
despite the clarity provided by regulation. A number of jurisdictions have moved ahead, regardless of Mika, the markets and crypto assets regulation, and done their own work, effectively putting in place legislative frameworks. And those national requirements may still continue, irrespective of Mika. That needs to translate through to supervisory coordination and convergence in order to create the certainty and the safety that Mika aims to achieve. One of the concerns generally is the sheer amount of change that is heading towards financial markets, regulatory efforts generally. So changes to rules and the impacts on clients, as well as changes or expansion of supervisory mandates. But then also more importantly, whilst the EU is changing, the UK is obviously going its own path. And that requires effectively having two sets of rule books side by side and tracking the divergence. So I think when our clients and when we engage with them on a both an EU only basis, but also on a EU plus UK and rest of the world basis, a lot of it is helping them make sense of what's happening where and where there are divergences. And some of those divergences are quite small, right? So for example, in capital and prudential regulatory, there's a better degree of alignment there. But when you move over onto the conduct of business side, say, for example, in relation to MIFIR, MIFID 2, there are some divergences that will invariably mean that certain processes and policies and procedures will require some additional fine-tuning and tweaking on both sides of the English Channel or the Irish Sea, or indeed both. And then, of course, if we look at some of the bigger changes, if we just pick up on digital operational resilience, on both sides of the UK and the EU, there's basically two versions of how to get to the desired end goal, but the route to getting there is somewhat different. So whilst the general principles can be set in how to approach digital operational resilience, a lot of clients, financial services, market participants primarily, but also those software companies that provide cloud services to them are starting to think, okay, this could be a larger task than originally anticipated, right? So a lot of that will then boil down to road mapping when change is happening, where there's some quick wins, where there is efforts that can be duplicated in complying with two rule books that conceptually are similar in the end goal and the objectives, but very different in detail and ensuring that compliance can be put in place on an equal footing in the jurisdictions that one's involved with. So that's something which takes a little bit more time than perhaps policymakers when drafting the rules on both sides for their jurisdictions may have accounted for. And it requires earlier preparation efforts by financial market participants and non-financial market participants who have to comply with it. So that's something that's keeping our clients busy. I think the one point that is quite clear is that post the pandemic or the worst of the pandemic, the European supervisory authorities, the national level authorities, but then also the major global peers, be in the UK or the United States, are very much back to business as normal, even though it's not business as pre-pandemic, which means that the pace of reform is certainly advancing, perhaps even faster than it was prior to the pandemic, because there's so much more to catch up on in order to get to the various different goals that have been communicated previously. Okay, that's really interesting. You've mentioned the Capital Requirements Directive, and that is obviously prudential regulation, which has been in effect in the EU for quite some years now. Back in 2020, the European Commission was seeking views on the benefits and drawbacks of an individual accountability regime under that directive. And that would effectively be a European version of the UK's Mm -hmm. individual accountability regime, which is known as the senior managers and certification regime. What's happening on that front? Well, there are a number of benefits to adopt something similar to the UK's senior manager and certification regime. And indeed, if you look at Ireland, Ireland has a very detailed framework that is perhaps 
in certain instances, much better conceived than the UK's version. But there are a number of other member states that have put in place their own similar type of concept. So the European Union legislative policymakers have been pressing ahead with looking at how to reform key function holders, so material risk takers, but also through to control functions within institutions of all types. So that's beyond just banking, but through the securities market participants, insurers, asset managers, etc. And the next push will probably be a step in that direction of creating an individual accountability regime. It may not have the look and feel immediately of what the UK has done, but it's certainly going to be a step to a more harmonized approach to dealing with that important topic. The point is, it's on the agenda. It may not be as high as perhaps it could be or should be, but it is one of those instances where the European Union is looking at lessons learned from the United Kingdom's own efforts in improving standards, as well as member states having done that work already to look at what other jurisdictions have done and look to harmonize that again on a European-wide basis. And firms should be cognizant of that and think about how, if that were to come in the next two to three years, how to better be equipped for that change and invest in ensuring the upskilling of all relevant members of staff, from key function holders down to those in individual business units advising or carrying out other regulated activity that requires a requisite technical skill and competence, to really start to reflect on that. Because it's been seen through the pandemic, the way business changed and the way consumer behaviors, but also institutional trading behavior changed, that there are weaknesses that the supervisors are now starting to focus on. And... It's certainly on the to-do list for firms to get that right, because the change is going to come at some point, then that will translate into supervisory action very, very quickly. Okay. And you mentioned that you and your group advise EU supervisory authorities. What are you advising them on currently? What's topping their list of concerns? Well, a lot of it is generally ensuring that regulatory reforms, as they've been conceived on paper, is actually translating into practice. So Part of it's helping regulators understand what the market is doing. Our role there is to provide feedback on the effectiveness and also efficacy of various different supervisory tools. In addition, working with a number of authorities in various different jurisdictions who are in different stages of their deepening relationship with the European Union in order to assist how they may translate some of that into practice. I think generally there really has been a focus of Now's the time to get the single rulebook truly more single and also get the single supervisory culture in how that rulebook should be applied much more cemented. So you're seeing a lot of renewed effort for multi-authority cooperation and much more streamlining. And that, in theory, should translate into a cheaper cost of compliance for financial services firms supervised by those various different authorities. In practice, how we get to that cheaper cost of compliance and more efficient supervision requires a dedicated effort on, on both the supervised firm, but also by the supervisors themselves. So we're assisting on all parts of that journey, mostly with providing detailed technical expertise on various different legislation and regulatory requirements as they're put into practice. And you mentioned that there was a renewed focus on streamlining of processes. What does that look like? We've historically had through most of financial services rulemaking being done by way of directive. 
There's been a, a shift over the last five years to that increasingly being done by way of regulation, as well as very detailed regulatory technical standards and implementing technical standards that serve to eliminate that fragmentation. So the big push that I see in this coming supervisory cycle is very much a renewed focus on reforming prevention of financial crime, so AML and terrorist financing efforts, as well as financial crime more broadly, the proposal to create the AML authority, AMLA, the proposal to replace the anti-money laundering directives with an anti-money laundering regulation. That's a big step forward. It may look like something small on paper, but it's a big step forward to really saying, okay, let's take 27 plus interpretations of common outcomes that were set over various periods of years in the reforms to the AML directives and replace it specifically with a approach that will really drive harmonization and hopefully end differing national interpretation. So that's the most current outlook piece that's ahead. We're seeing just a greater harmonization of efforts. And that also tracks through from who's making the rules and how they've been made, Europeanization of that whole process through to a greater Europeanization of supervision. So basically, policymakers responsible for creating the rules as well as creating supervisory standards increasingly come from the European Union level. So the European supervisory authorities and ESMA being chief amongst them, having pushed through the use of the supervisory tool, the common supervisory action, basically a coordinated on-site inspection, that thematic review that's conducted across the European Union. That's also something which shows a direction of travel, that it's not just the larger national level authorities that are setting the tone, but it really is certainly for a first sustained amount of time European supervisory authorities that are saying, okay, this is the area that we want to supervise. We're going to coordinate the national competent authorities and push that through. So that I think is beginning to really show an impact on supervisory engagement, both in tone, both in depth, and effectively the much stricter level of scrutiny that's being applied. And that's something for financial services firms to continue to take note of because it goes across a number of thematic areas. Okay, interesting. And, and just for the benefit of listeners who may not be familiar with some of the terms you mentioned, you mentioned ESMA, which is the European Securities and Markets Authority, which is the EU markets watchdog. You also mentioned that there's a shift from passing EU directives to EU regulation. Could you explain for those listeners who might not be familiar with the difference between those two, what the difference is and what the pros and cons of shifting from directive to regulation is? Sure, that's an excellent question. So the easiest way to explain it is in both are legislative instruments that are voted on and passed by the respective co-legislators in the EU. A directive requires the member states of the European Union to give effect in their own national laws to the aims and the requirements that are set out in the directive. Regulation, once it is passed, it automatically becomes law in that member state. So there's no transposition requirement of that member state needed in order to give effect to that regulation. So that means that if we take something like MIFID, so the Markets and Financial Instruments Directive, which is a cornerstone of financial services regulation in the securities trading space, MIFID has been implemented in all of the 27 member states of the European Union, and it has to have been implemented in various national laws. And because you have multiple national laws and multiple jurisdictions, there is at times the risk that the law could be different between the member states and how that's been implemented, or certain member states have put in place additional requirements. And that, of course, means that there's a degree of fragmentation. So with that in mind, 
the European Commission, working together with the European Supervisory Authority, so EBA for the banking sector, ESMA for the securities and market sector, EOPA for insurance and pensions, as well as the European Central Bank in its role at the head of the single supervisory mechanism of the banking union, have all pushed for this greater harmonization by using specifically either directly applicable regulations with limited or in concept much more limited means of national interpretation or national gold plating or national additional requirements being put in place. So there is certainly an effort for improving supervisory convergence and with supervisory convergence generating a more harmonized regulatory environment and how the rules are made. Rulemaking harmonization is then also being accompanied by harmonization in supervisory interpretation. So that means that a number of the EU-level authorities, so that's either EBA, ESMA, EOPA, or the European Central Bank, publishing guidelines, which are addressed in part to national-level authorities, but also in part to supervised financial services market participants, explaining, effectively setting the tone from the top, how the standards that have been published in the regulatory and legislative rulemaking instruments, how they're supposed to be interpreted. So that drive of let's harmonize how the rules are made, let's eliminate fragmentation through having a truly more harmonized set of rules, leaving very limited optionality at the national level, is then being echoed by communicating how those rules should be supervised by the various different authorities that make up the European system of financial supervision. Okay, and so there is a much greater focus on different European financial services authorities speaking to each other, aligning their views on particular rules that need to be passed and ensuring that they have as much control as possible as to how those rules are then subsequently interpreted by local regulators in specific EU markets. What's driving that? Well, it's partly the understanding that if we are to truly build a single market for financial services, all authorities need to be working with one another and talking to one another in terms of concepts that exist in various different legislative instruments need to be compatible with the respective different elements. In 2015, 2016, the EU became quite focused on let's build a capital markets union, right? So the capital markets union is supposed to drive forward this harmonization to ensure that we truly have pan-European capital markets, and we don't have a collection of 27-plus capital markets. That was a major change in the approach of, let's move away from focusing on individual themes and sectors to actually going forward in a much more meaningful manner and looking at the financial services market as a core component of the EU's single markets. And so a number of Changes were made in that space, chief amongst them, of course, the securitization regulation is a flagship project to take how securitization was regulated in five different legislative instruments to five different sectors of the market and bring it to a single regulation. That most certainly was not necessarily the easiest task, but it's one that has changed the dialogue of how rulemaking is done, right? We don't have in the European Union a single capital markets supervisor. So we don't have a an EU equivalent to the SEC. We have ESMA, which has a number of coordinating powers. It also has a number of direct supervisory powers, but it has a lot which is perhaps still missing from it in order to become that pan-European 
capital markets supervisor. And then in the insurance and occupational pension side of things, we have AOPA, which of course is at a much more earlier stage of its Europeanization of its powers and how it supervises insurance and occupational pensions firms. So I think the direction of travel is certainly very promising. The pandemic has been a wake-up call for a number of EU policymakers, as well as for the stakeholders in who makes the rules and how they're supervised in order to get to a view that only together can we achieve much more and we need to end fragmentation. So I think that's been welcome. The current energy crisis and cost of living crisis means that this continued effort, uh, let's drive forward harmonization and how rules are made and how they're supervised, will most certainly continue to gather even more pace over the next couple of years to come. Okay, interesting. And you mentioned that you believe ESMA is, is lacking a fair few tools to become the pan-European market supervisor that it needs to, and that IOPA, the insurance regulator in the EU, is also an earlier stage of its Europeanization than perhaps it needs to be right now. You've also mentioned that EU regulators are back to normal after the pandemic. And all those points lead to my next question, which is that any pressure points remaining in terms of the the day-to-day work of EU regulators? Are EU regulators well-placed to handle what is undoubtedly going to be a a difficult economic period in the months ahead? You've mentioned the cost of living, the energy crisis. We also have high inflation, the risk of recession, alongside other pressure points, which is connected to the energy crisis, such as the spillover effects of the war in Ukraine and the aftermath of the pandemic. Europe has been very good at never letting a good crisis go to waste. A lot of the major developments, both in institutional reform of supervisors and the supervisory community, have been achieved as a direct result of very difficult macroeconomic as well as systemic crises that the European Union and financial services participants have faced, right? So in that, I think, quite promising for the outlook for institutional reform that a number of the building blocks have already been implemented in previous crises, right? So as long as there's a political will amongst member states to push forward greater Europeanization, and in most, certainly, jurisdictions that have quite developed financial services markets, that political will is certainly there. That continued direction of travel to greater Europeanization, greater powers for the authorities, be it as simple as greater dialogue between the EU-level authorities, which means that the three individual authorities responsible for 99% of financial markets rulemaking and supervision will talk to one another. But as you rightly say, we've had two, three years possibly where life has been disrupted. And that means that whilst the authorities are getting more tools and new ways of being able to conduct financial market supervision, it's a very different toolkit that is required, partly because the way financial services activity is conducted may no longer be fully eccentric. In most instances, it's probably hybrid working in terms of the financial services firms that are supposed to be supervised, some of the rules that apply to them may never have been conceived in a manner where someone is working from home. And equally, uh, supervisors who themselves have returned to the office are all having to reconnect with their peers at various different authorities. So we have a change in behaviors, both in the market, but also among supervisors. And What is still missing is that 
the European supervisory authorities, which have an incredible workload to deal with, require possibly more individuals to be working at those authorities to carry out that entire remit of what's required and expected of them. So one thing, if we look at the numbers of employees at even the largest of the three European supervisory authorities of ESMO or EBA, compared to the European Central Bank and its supervisory arm, as well as the National Competent Authorities for Banking Unit Supervision, there's a major difference in numbers. And if we compare that also with numbers of staff that might exist in other jurisdictions, especially in the United States, but to a certain degree, possibly at the FCA in the UK, there is also a major difference in numbers. So ESMA needs much more supervisory staff, and it requires ultimately potentially supervisory staff that have had the ability to operate in a pan-European basis. So having conducted pan-European supervision. So ESMA sources a number of its staff from the individual national competent authorities. So it will source its staff from the German regulator, from the French, from the Italian, from the Croatian, etc. right? All of that makes sense, but it may not mean that it has the same level of pan-European supervision in much the same way that the European Central Bank has done so by putting together joint supervisory teams. So if we look at how a bank is supervised through the ECB and banking union, you have joint supervisory teams. So that means that you have staff that are directly from the ECB's premises in Frankfurt, which that component of the staff will be of various different nationalities, usually not always the nationality of the financial services firm that is supervised. And when I say nationality of the financial services firm, I mean where it's headquartered, together with staff from the individual competent authority where that financial services firm is headquartered. So you have a number of different specialisms and a number of different types of supervisors all supervising that individual financial institution. ESMA, EBA, which has a lesser role, but not an insignificant one in direct supervision, as well as AOPA, do not necessarily have that full breadth of staff available to them. And that's something which the authorities themselves have said for a number of years in addressing requests to the European Commission, please give us more resources because we have an exceptionally full workload and the market looks to us to perform on that workload. So the barrier is not with the supervisory architecture. The barrier is with those that are responsible for allocating funding to that supervisory architecture. And at the same time, those that are potentially putting in place the barrier to greater resources are putting even more workload on those authorities to carry out additional tasks. So it's a bit of a catch-22 situation in that sense. And another thing that we're seeing is that the skill set that is being developed at national authorities is also changing to the better. If we look at, for example, the German National Competent Authority, certainly for conduct of business regulation, for most of prudential regulation at the national level, the BaFin, they have reorganized. It has a very heavy workload. It itself is going out to recruit more technical skills that have been identified as missing. So specifically in the case of forensic investigations, specific in the case of financial crime and fraud prevention, given some various developments that of course have happened over the past two, three years in respect of BAPN supervised firms. So the supervisors themselves uh, at the national level are increasingly resizing their amount of resources because they can, and they're also specializing them. 
And that raises the question for European policymakers, does it make sense to have, for example, experts in securitization or in crypto assets or in something as simple as debt capital markets across all national level authorities? Well, to a certain degree, you have to weigh up where is the activity taking place. So you have a number of jurisdictions. So for example, Luxembourg, which has an exceptional depth of expertise in respective funds and respective listings and respective collateral eligibility, which in many ways is unrivaled by a number of other jurisdictions where a different type of financial market activity is taking place. And that's also a change that one looks at the European system of financial supervision and says, okay, we have an EU level and we have a national level. And it's okay if the national level decides to have a greater degree of specialism in a one specific area, as long as that national level authority is able to do what's required of it, but also perhaps lend a hand to another authority that may not be able to develop that same skill set. So that's also changing. And the parallels from the United States' own evolution present a lesson in history, effectively, for the European Union to emulate in many ways, because in the United States have a federal-level supervisory community of various different authorities, and we also have individual state-level authorities. And it's clear that in certain states of the United States, the state-level authority is perhaps more important in comparison to its peers across the border in another state because of its specialism, not because of the value that it plays, but very much because of its specialism. So that's something that is changing. It's happening organically, but it also means that the way supervisory engagement is conducted from a perspective of a supervised firm is also quite different, right? So if you're dealing with a regulator that in the periphery of the European Union, which may not have the most experience in a certain asset class or transaction type, one of the questions should be, well, is there anyone else in the community of European system of financial supervisors, or is there anyone at the European level authorities that could perhaps help you, national regulator, when dealing with us? Because Mm -hmm. otherwise, you get into a feedback loop, which could be quite counterproductive. The other problem that you have is that you have a number of staff that may move from one supervisor to another. And it's about how do you retain the knowledge within that one authority for the benefit of that authority, whilst at the same time sharing it with all the other stakeholders within the European system of financial supervision. So that if you have an exceptionally talented colleague that has been at the ECB, for example, that has then moved to the single resolution board based in Brussels, how does the knowledge that is coupled to that person, potentially, how is it retained for the benefit of the ECB's own supervisory mandate? So that the experience gained in one part can actually translate positively through to other parts. And one thing that's probably clear is with these authorities continually growing workload, and because macroeconomic factors dictate the tasks, new geopolitical risks create a different environment. Continued funding and possibly an increase of funding would be very much welcome. And it Mm -hmm. should be something that should be supported at various different levels, both the national level, but also ultimately at the financial supervised firms, because that would lead to a greater efficiency of supervision. So push-pull dynamic, there's not a simple quick fix to it, but We're in a much better place now coming out of the pandemic 
than we were perhaps with a requisite degree of comfort that existed prior to the pandemic. Okay, you've mentioned that as part of the EU authorities' focus on increased harmonisation, there is a much stricter level of scrutiny being applied to the national competent authorities. I'm interested to know how national EU regulators or the national competent authorities, as they're known, are reacting to that. Have you seen any pushback? Look, there are obviously certain regulators at national level that feel that Europeanization is perhaps a bad thing because it may be a bit of mission creep on behalf of the EU regulatory authorities dictating what a national competent authority should do or how they do it. And that's part and parcel of any widespread change management project in the sense of there will be always be those that may feel that some change is overstepping the boundaries of what had previously worked quite well for a number of years. But the direction of travel is quite clear. And there, I would say one of the questions for national competent authorities will be if this Europeanization model is going to continue along its path, then are there certain areas that national competent authorities in which they already excel should concentrate their efforts on to become centers of excellence for the benefit of the wider European system of financial supervision? And whether that would be something worth considering. Okay, well, that's been a very informative conversation, Michael, and particularly in relation to your last point, it'd be interesting to get you back further down the line to discuss how that has all played out. Thank you for taking the time today to speak with Following the Rules. Thank you very much, Lucy. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.